Your son, he's gone. He was weak and foolish, like his father. So I destroyed him. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Weak and Foolish Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Tang. Joining me are my fellow podcasters, Job Ang. Sup, y'all? Albert Liu. Hey, everyone. And Paul Shu. Konnichiwa. In this episode, we are going to be discussing a trio of Japanese films that have recently hit American cinemas. Godzilla Minus One, The Boar and the Heron, and Monster. The fall and winter quarter of 2023 has been pretty unique as the writers and actor strikes have caused a bunch of movies to be pushed into 2024. So to fill this void, there seemed to be a pretty decent choice of international films to grace American theaters. And it just so happened that a few weeks back, two Japanese films debuted in the top five of the U.S. box office, Godzilla Minus One and Boy in the Heron. So in this episode, we're here to discuss those three films, Godzilla, Boy in the Heron, and Monster. And I actually could think of no better people to be on here for this episode. We've got Job and Albert, who are Godzilla super fans. So we'll be discussing the latest Japanese entry in the long-running franchise. We've also got Albert and Paul for The Boy and the Heron. Both guys are huge Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli fans. So they will be uh, educating us on the meaning behind this seemingly complex film. And then Paul, champion of the prestige films and number one hater of Marvel theme park movies, is going to discuss with me the latest film from Shoplifters director uh, Hirokazu Koreeda, Monster. And we're going to talk about each film one at a time, first with a non-spoiler discussion about our overall thoughts on the movie, and then followed by a spoiler talk about specific things that we liked and disliked about the movie. All right, so we're going to start with Godzilla Minus One. I want to hear from the Godzilla fans. Let's hear from uh, Job. Okay, what did you think about Godzilla minus one, especially this one being a Japanese film compared to all the American stuff that's been coming out. Yeah, I loved this movie. Uh, let's cut to the chase. I thought it was fantastic. Um, Godzilla is a franchise that spans many different forms o- over the years, uh, many different styles and um, and vibes, really. And the very first Godzilla was a very serious character drama that was that used the monster as kind of a backdrop to tell a deeper story or um, be a social commentary of some sort. Um, but as as the franchise has gone on since then, uh, it's kind of become more campy, kind of more uh, silly. Godzilla becomes a hero character. Um, and really, I, I feel like I haven't experienced a Godzilla film that matched the the feel and the kind of emotionality of the first one quite like godzilla minus one uh it was 
an, a deeply emotional experience actually, which is really strange to say about a Godzilla film. Um, and I thought this, the character, uh, the human characters were done extremely well. And that's not always the case for Godzilla movies. Um, there's a lot to talk about in spoilers, but that's my general impression so far. Um, as a fan of all the Godzilla movie, well, like many of the Godzilla movies over the years, um, from the Showa era to the Heisei era and all the way through, um, even the, the current uh, MonsterVerse uh, iterations of Godzilla. I love all of those too. Um, some of them are serious. Some of them are dumb uh, and silly. But uh, that's kind of the what you get with the Godzilla film. But Godzilla minus one uh, dares to take itself seriously, I suppose, and and comes out victorious. I would say. Nice. Glad to hear that you uh, you enjoyed it. Um, all right. How about uh, Albert? What do you think? I think Job took the words right out of my mouth. I've been like the Godzilla fan since I was a very young kid. I remember. KCOP or Channel 13, for those of you that remember, used to have a Godzilla-thon every, I think it was a Thursday afternoon or, or Sunday afternoon. And they would sort of do a double feature of Godzilla movies uh, around that time. And I remember as a kid, that's how I got into it. Luckily or unluckily, depending on how you look at it, my very first exposure to Godzilla was the first Godzilla film. And it made a huge, powerful impact on me. But I do have to put an asterisk as, on it as it was the Americanized version with Raymond no. Burr. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. There, but I did get around to watching the original and the impact on, on me was just as powerful. Uh, I love Campy Godzilla as well. I, I mean, one of my favorite side characters is is Rodan. I, I I grew up loving you know Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla, King Ghidorah, all those other folks, and uh, I kind of love how over the span of its seventy years, Godzilla has held many many iterations. It's like what Job said: he could be the antihero, he could be the hero, he could be you know sometimes the villain, but less so. It can be like you know a wrestling uh, movie of gargantuan proportions. It, it could just be like this big monster verse. It's been an anime. It's it's been a lot of different things, but. Yeah, I think this latest effort um, with Minus One has to be, I was blown away, it has to be like the best effort from Toho Studios. It, you know, since that very first Godzilla, I think probably because one, it stays relevant to the original themes of that first Godzilla movie. So you almost feel like it's like it's spiritual sequel, all this, all this, um, you know this, 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 these themes about you know the dangers of of nuclear weaponry. But I think they 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 upped it by sort of showing you, you know, what does it mean for post war Japan? Uh, what does it mean for people in that era to sort of find their identity and and sort of get their spirit back after such a traumatic experience? That you know, I have to credit the movie uh, for doing this. It kind of eludes that was partially of their own making um and you know they found a way to sort of one up what toho did with shin godzilla and you know shin godzilla was a iteration of the fukushima disaster right and it, it was such it made such a huge impact on people it won like japan's equivalent of best film the year it came out uh their version of the oscars and i but i think this one just did so much better because it's like what joe was saying it's not like that uh, Godzilla is as much of an allegory 
for historical events he has been but the human characters are so well done this is the leanest told blockbuster uh i think i've seen since top gun maverick even though it has a fraction of the budget no line is wasted every character is very well developed you don't feel like any minute is wasted on you know how this story is told so Highly, highly recommend to everyone um, to watch this movie. Don't miss it in theaters while you still can, because you do you see it on the biggest screen possible. All right. So I want to ask you guys, uh, Chobin, Albert, like what? So I'm not a Godzilla fan. I've only seen the American movies. I've seen Godzilla 98, Godzilla 2014, the Gareth Edwards one. I've seen King of Monsters and then Godzilla versus Kong. If I want to go and explore like the Japanese, like where Godzilla came from, right? He came from Japanese cinema. What if you were to say like the top three Godzilla films I should watch uh, in Japanese cinema? Which ones should I go for? This is for our listeners also. Uh, you go may first. Be... <laughs> Definitely the first one, the nineteen fifty four one. That I don't know if Criterion is streaming it, but they definitely have cop a copy of that. Um, I actually have never seen the Americanized version of that one. I've only seen. Oh, yeah. Can you explain that a little bit? Like he, oh, uh, yeah. Albert made a comment about that and then uh, you groaned. So uh, yeah. Can you elaborate on that? I, I did not understand what that was. They, uh, I forget the American actor. They basically spliced into the movie. Raymond Burr. Was Raymond, Raymond Burr. Burr. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they, they took, the original film and then basically turned the character the main character into an american guy and it's in english oh my right gosh. he he speaks in english yeah, he does yeah. yeah yeah he's like a reporter or something yeah so and, and they pass that off as like you know godzilla like the film and but you know, is are there japanese characters who speak japanese there are, but the the roles have sort of been. I mean, there's. I think there's a Sarazawa in there too, a Doctor Sarazawa. But I think is it a different guy? I don't think it's a different guy. I think oh, okay, just, just redubbed it. And I, yeah. I think that's what they did. It's yeah. essentially like the like the equivalent of doing massive reshoots for a, a movie that you're trying to fix. <laughs> but is it is it kind of like Power Rangers? You know how it took footage from Japanese. TV shows. That's whatever. a good analogy. Yeah, I, yeah, like I would that. say it's like that. And they kind of did it a second time, right? When in the 84, I think it was the 1984 Godzilla, uh, they called it Godzilla Returns here in the States. Joe, please correct me if I'm wrong. And I think Raymond Burr also came back for that one. I think it was it, kind Godzilla, of, yeah. yeah, it was Godzilla Raids Again is the second yes. movie, right? Yeah, that one. Yeah, so it wasn't the only time they did something like that. It's kind yeah. of interesting. So don't okay. don't watch the Raymond Burr one. Watch Godzilla nineteen or right. it it often goes by Gojira also. All right, so so that's that's one movie. So the original Godzilla and yeah. what else? Man, this is tough. Al Albert, what would you say is like another? One? I I would have to say Shin Godzilla. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, okay. from Hideki Anno, our favorite Evangelion creator. You could definitely tell it was directed by him, by the way. Uh, mm. But um, it. <sighs> You know, it's not as emotional as uh, minus one, nor do I think it's as good. But there's, it's, it's sort of you know, scathing critique of, of you know, how the government responded to Fukushima is is really interesting. You know, kind of, mm -hmm. you're like, why are these people just talking in one room to another? And it's because you know, it's it's critiquing the way how bureaucratic the Japanese government can be, and that's very slow to sort of 
react to to disasters at the expense mm -hmm. of people people's lives and that godzilla uh monster and that one's pretty gnarly looking too as well <laughs> yeah oh you got me there i that sounds that sounds really interesting yeah yeah it that was definitely a very fresh take on the godzilla um okay so shin godzilla came out recently right within the last yeah. couple of years it was the last japanese made one before godzilla minus one All right, and Job, did you like that one? I I enjoyed it. Um, I I didn't quite like it as much as Albert did, but um, I definitely watched it, and it was kind of bonkers. The the end of towards the end of that movie was yes. wild. All right, don't don't yeah. go into any details. Okay, I, I won't say. Gonna, I'm gonna seek it out and try to watch it. Okay, okay, and then what would your third Godzilla movie be? So we got the original one, Shin Godzilla. Man, oh man. Okay, so I'm just gonna go with like my personal favorite. Um, and this is kind of kind of campy, but kind of like semi-serious still is uh, the 1964 Mothra versus Godzilla. I really love that one. Um, is that on Criterion? It probably is. So Criterion did this like Godzilla collection of the Showa era films. I do have that. It's like in a giant book that you can't store anywhere. Um, and then I'm going to cheat because I, I have to. Um, Anything, uh, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla or Terror of Mechagodzilla are really good too. So, those are two. I, I cheated and said two extra ones, but right. I love uh, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. That was my one of my oh, favorites man. for a while. Yeah, the uh, the the Showa ones, right? The ones from yeah. the sixties, yeah, the yeah. very first one, yeah. So, so yeah. another thing to know for those who are a little uninitiated is. Toho ended up making a lot of remakes of the original. So they made like, let's say Mothra versus Godzilla, but then they made new ones in the nineties as well. Or like uh, the, the Heisei on. era. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And All so right, there, can you explain the eras. Not... I noticed Godzilla fans tend to say like the, the different eras. Uh, could oh, you, yeah. Albert, you should take explain that what that is. It's just based on the Japanese calendar. You know how each era sort of represents an emperor's reign. So when they mean Heisei, they're they're talking about I forgot what the emperor's who the emperor's name was at the time, and I think right now we're in the I could be saying this wrong the Reiwa era because there, yeah. there was recently a switch in the emperor. So they they go by, you know, it, it's really just the emperor's reign. That's that's yeah. uh, that or the time that emperor um, was in, you know. Yeah. So like power. Heisei Heisei was nineteen eighty nine through twenty nineteen. And Showa was let me let me see. That's the longest <laughs> one, Showa. Easily, that, right? Yeah, yeah, Showa era. Let's see. Yeah, Hiro, Hirohito was imperfect. It's like the sixties through. I, I can't quite find it at the moment. All the way to I think the late eighties. Yeah, I think it was until eighty nine, and then the switch over, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. To Heisei. Yeah. Anyway, that's that's kind of how Godzilla gets sorted because it's been such a long running franchise you know you kind of sort them based on the imperial calendar so. all right cool hey so we have on the calendar for next year godzilla x kong my goal is go. by that by that point to have at least seen the original godzilla shin godzilla and maybe one of the ones you suggested job nice uh maybe godzilla versus mecha godzilla that sounds pretty fun depending um, how on how it wraps up maybe the monarch series too 
Oh yeah, it's true. Yeah, I mean that that the Monarch yeah. series that's going on right now, currently on Apple TV Plus, is that that connects to the movies? It connects to the um the Gareth Edwards era uh, Godzillas. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Yeah. All right then. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do some homework before then. Uh, I want to be a little bit more knowledgeable about this franchise. Yes. Um, and going back to the movie that we're talking about, Godzilla minus one. Uh, I just from the opening minutes. I really felt like what I was seeing was what was missing from the American movies, which is characters, characters that I actually cared about, characters that are well-written, they're complex, they're placed in difficult circumstances. And I think what really benefited these characters was placing them in the appropriate setting. And I, I've heard before in the past, Godzilla is about is a commentary on post-World uh, War II Japan. And the mindset that was happening, the trauma that they experienced, and, and you know all the complex uh, angles that you can kind of discuss that and, and elaborate on that. So, but I never got that from the American movies. The American movies were just mindless popcorn. Like it became more and more like Fast and Furious, which you know I don't mind. I, I like seeing monsters fighting each other. That's pretty cool. But in this movie, immediately their stories were deeply felt, and the themes are very clear. And then um, I think. I really think this movie took a huge inspiration from Steven Spielberg's Jaws. You got the monster, a very compelling monster, and then you also have very compelling characters that you're invested in, and those things are intertwined. I think there's so much better in this film than the any of the American ones. And, and they were so good in this movie that I actually never felt the urge to see Godzilla again. I actually wanted... I cared so much about the human drama that I wanted to know what was going to happen to them, what was going to happen to these, uh, this this found family. Um, I want to say that uh, the actress Sakura Ando, fun little tidbit, I actually saw Monster, out of the three movies that we're going to discuss today, I actually saw Monster first, and then the next day I saw Godzilla Minus One, and I was really surprised to see her in this movie after seeing her in Monster. In In this movie, she plays... Uh, Koichi's neighbor, Sumiko Oda, the one who looks after the uh, little girl, Akiko. Um, so, yeah, she was actually in Monster, who, and she was also in Shoplifters. That's where I first saw her. So, seeing her again was kind of a nice surprise. I will say the one thing that detracted from this movie, one thing I didn't like, was that the acting was a little bit overly exaggerated. I mean, borderline anime style of yelling and big feeling emoting. I actually kind of laughed at some parts because I was like, man, this is a little bit too melodramatic. It kind of took me out of some of the moments, kind of made me want to laugh, especially after seeing Monster, which is like a serious uh, character study drama. And then obviously, I know this is like, this is trying to take its character seriously, placing him in a very unique scenario. Uh, but, uh, you know, the acting sometimes I didn't really feel like served it uh, as well. Uh, I, I know they're trying, but then they tried a little too hard, in my opinion. They overacted. So that was, I think that was probably the only thing that uh, yeah wasn't as good, I think, about this movie compared to the rest of it, which I really did appreciate. I don't know. Did you guys feel that way about the acting? I mean, for this type of movie, not really. I kind of expect it <laughs> in a way, you know, I, I especially, you know, it's not like a quiet drama or anything like that. So I. I, 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 you know, I've definitely seen other Japanese movies where, I've, you know, you've seen this this type of acting, and, and so it, it didn't quite bother me, um, yeah, too much to be real frank, yeah. I, I guess mean, I, was... I only, yeah, because I only see that kind of acting in anime, so I never see it live action, like people <laughs> actually like acting like that. 
Uh, usually when I watch like a live action Japanese film, it's usually like a serious drama, like, you know, art house indie type film. So it's not, I, I've never seen like a Japanese blockbuster. And then so, yeah, I wasn't used to it. Seeing an anime acting in live action. That's totally fair. I, I, I thought the same thing. I was like, oh, am I watching an anime? Like the first few minutes of the movie. Um, but it, it didn't take me out of it. Yeah, the, that's kind of like how how this franchise has some of its act, uh, characters act. It's like very big and loud and yeah, in your face. Uh, very melodramatic. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, Mike, if, I think if you keep watching some of the other Godzilla movies, if you make it to the Heisei era, that's when the melodrama kind of <laughs> goes out the window. So this this seemed tame to me in comparison, to be real frank. So, oh, man. Yeah. 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 So it sounds like the history of Godzilla, it, it sounds like James Bond, 007. Like it has its serious era and then its campy era. And the Daniel Craig era is like really grounded in reality. I think that's a good comparison. That I makes, think so. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's I, I, got a little for everyone. That's what I love about it overall. Yeah, I feel like you don't last as long, uh, this long as a franchise without like changing it up. And uh, boy, do they, you know. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, you have a movie called Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla. So that, that, oh yes, yeah, oh my god, it's already pretty ridiculous. And then you I, get Son of Godzilla, and uh, yeah. yeah. I love I love little Godzilla. Yeah. I, I love all iterations of the son of Godzilla. It's just that little circular puff he goes, but that's that's yeah the smoke ring he does. Oh yeah. my gosh! <laughs> what what in the world is son of Godzilla? Yeah. First movie you should watch, uh, Mike. <laughs> you want to really do your homework? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that kind of like watching Batman and Robin? No, it's better. <laughs> I think it's better. <laughs> okay, okay. I think it's better. So. <laughs> all right, all right. Okay, all right, let's uh, transition to spoilers starting now. No, no, you're still holding on! Let go! All right, uh, I think right off the bat, uh, let's talk about the main character, uh, Koichi Shikishima. <laughs> sorry, I'm so sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name. But he's a kamikaze pilot who returns from the war. And immediately, that whole scenario is like, you get a sense of the dishonor this in this character. And he goes back to his hometown. Everyone sees him as betraying their nation. You know, he didn't, how does a kamikaze pilot come back? You know, so I think that's uh, that inner turmoil, turmoil within this character and how he grapples with being a coward and living on past the war. He has like a lot of survivors guild. That's already immediately compelling. I'm like, that's what a great entry point into this story. Yeah, totally. I I think what makes it even more interesting is that you can draw it's it's almost used to draw a comparison about how Japan reevaluated uh how they saw the value of lives after the war and something they allude to uh later on, right? Cuz clearly it's not like they <laughs> far from it. They were <laughs> now without fought and how it started. So I I think the movie is an interesting examination of all of that as well i i think you know um i'm trying to think of the director i forgot his name all of a sudden it's um dang it a takashi yamazaki i think you know I've, I've seen 
you know, one of his movies early on, um, The Returner of Takeshi Kaneshiro. I saw him in X, was like absolutely in love with that guy, like everybody was around that time. But, um, you know, to see him sort of go from like some sort of B-grade sci-fi flick to uh, writing a movie with serious themes, you know, I almost felt in the first 15 minutes of watching this movie, I was pretty blown away. It was like, well, we're, we're going heavy, right? This is not a character we've yeah, never seen, right. a kamikaze pilot. Who has to examine what his honor and what his life means after in the waning days of, of World War II, right? So I, I thought that was an right off the bat, extremely fascinating premise. Yeah, I didn't know that people were designated as kamikaze pilots. Like, I thought there was just something that they did during the battle when they realized, like, oh, we're in a this certain strategic position, so we got to execute this maneuver by having pilots sacrifice themselves. I thought that's when they were chosen. I didn't know... Like the whole village knew that he was selected as a kamikaze pilot. That's what it seemed like. And then he would, <clears throat> he basically went and, and, but then he, he returned, right? So, um, yeah, that, I thought that was enlightening as well. All right. Since you guys are well versed in Godzilla history and are huge fans of this franchise, uh, I want you to enlighten me on all the little nuggets that you picked on. Were there references to other movies or like nods? easter eggs things like that i think like most of our listeners i'm just watching this as a standalone movie you guys are watching it in a through a very different lens i was wondering if you guys picked up on any connections i mean usually godzilla comes from the um and they reference it in the very beginning that i suddenly forgot what the island was called uh bikini Atoll. Uh no, it was it was uh Odo oh. Island. Odo oh Island. yeah, that's, that's right. usually that's usually where I think in some of the films Godzilla comes from. That's also where, in some of the older films, he plays around with you know, I think this his little son <laughs> in one of the cheesier ones. But Odo yes. I Odo Island has always held sort of a special place in in Godzilla lore and and the fact that the kamikaze pilot. You know, landed on it. You're like, oof, something's gonna happen. I mean, if you, if you are familiar with the franchise at all, so that was a that was one immediate Easter egg I picked up on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, an obvious one is uh, the original theme plays during a key part when he is at the train, right? Um, the train that Noriko is on. Um, does it doesn't does that play? It plays more than once, right? Like whenever he shows up, they play that song. Yeah, I think so. And, oh. and, you know, to be fair, it's been played in other more recent right. Godzilla movies, too. But for some reason, it hit it hit, it hit much harder this time. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how to describe it. I don't know. It's because they said back in the era of the first Godzilla movie. But yeah, something about it was very different. I think the moment was really impactful, too. Um, but yeah, yeah. They, 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 they played it in even in King of the Monsters. But, you know, it kind of wasn't the same. It didn't feel the same. Yeah. Is also um, modernized. I mean, when Godzilla first shows up, I thought that was very interesting. He was like so small. I was like, what the, yeah. that's it? And then, you know, through the, the different testing footage that they show throughout the movie, like, oh, wow. So he gets yeah. bigger and bigger. That's really cool. Yeah, I like that they, they referenced that he looked like a dinosaur-like creature, which in, in some of the Godzilla movies, his origin story is he was a Godzilla-saurus. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah. Albert. 
Yeah, I oh, do. Is, that, is, is that the one that shows up in uh, in New York City? <laughs> no, that was an iguana, Mike. That yeah, that was, was an iguana. A, that was a radioactive iguana. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and that's Godzilla now, not Godzilla. Yeah, okay. they, they officially renamed that Godzilla. Yeah, they, they took the They God renamed that movie? They well, the, the creature. The, the yeah. creature, yeah. Oh, they just called it Zilla. Zilla. Zilla, yeah. It doesn't deserve the God in Godzilla, so. That is hilarious. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so sad. I still, I still stand our skinny king. <laughs> skinny I, you know that movie was enjoyable. I'm not gonna lie. I do enjoy it, but it, I, I, I have. Oh, wait, to it, not... it was a, it was a woman. Our, 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 our queen, slay queen. Yeah. Oh right, because they had eggs. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. If I don't think of it as a Godzilla movie, right? <laughs> so, it's, yeah. it, it's almost like a Jurassic Park movie or something. Yeah, something like. That. All right. What about uh? What, what are the Easter eggs? Oh, we got man. the theme. We got uh, we got the island. The the roar was, I think, the original roar from the first movie. I, I I'm reading this on IMDb. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really they, cool. They took the original roar from 1954 and played it over loudspeakers, and then recorded that and used that audio. Oh wow! To oh, make that's it pretty impressive. I guess to make it bigger sounding because you know it was. Anyway, it's it's super nerdy stuff, but the, how they made the original roar was a guy took like um a glove, put rosin on it. I think it's rosin, and then scraped it over like a, a like a cello string bed. Oh. Made that grating like thing, and that was like the basis of the original roar. Um, oh, you, cool. you know this before? I didn't know you, that. you knew this. Yeah, I, yeah. Wow. Okay, that's, that's it's really like cool. it's the Godzilla roar is like an a cinematic icon uh, sound, and so like it's like as iconic as a lightsaber hum, and so I'm like super interested in like how they made them and stuff. Anyway, yeah. So so I guess this version's Godzilla is the same as the original movie as well, which is super cool. You mean like the the design of Godzilla? No, the the um the roar, the sound design, yeah. Oh, just, just all... yeah. The design is has, is kind of closer to the original too. That is that true. We've seen in a long time, yeah. So, although he looks kind of nice, like if you, he looks like he's smiling at you a little bit. You know? I love the eyes. I I think that's one thing they got really right about this Godzilla is the is eyes are, are terrifying, especially in that scene where it's chasing them in the boat. That's just insane. Oh, the one that that's used in all the. Thumbnails, yeah right? I, yeah i'd be like oh, oh man freaking jaws. <laughs> something like that was chasing me i'd be like yeah yeah there's your jaws reference Mike. jaws on steroids yeah i i heard someone else reference this but there were a lot of spielberg it seems like spielberg dna and the way they made this one even that whole opening sequence on odo island felt like like a jurassic park a jurassic park movie in a way and then jaws with him chasing the boat I got to say one thing I really appreciated about this film was and in, in the American movies, there's so much teasing of Godzilla. You see his foot, you see his tail, <laughs> you see things that he destroys. Right. And then they, there's all this teasing leading up to when he finally shows up and they, they, you see him in his full glory. Uh, in this movie, the camera just pans over and you see the entire creature. And then he's like destroying things and eating people already. And I'm like, wow, there's no teasing at all. They just like do go straight into it. And I actually really appreciated that because every American film 
it just keeps teasing. I'm like, dude, we we've seen him already. Like, just yeah. show show us Godzilla. Stop teasing. Yeah. And they just cut straight to the chase here because that's what people show up for. So I actually really appreciate this movie. Just went straight, cut straight to the chase. You know what's great about that, Mike? Is I, I agree. Um, but then because it seems like they were so confident in their human characters that they didn't have to make the teasing the the like thing to that we're trying to get to they were so confident yeah, in their human characters they they were okay with just showing him yeah it's not it's not this time godzilla isn't the main character it's the the the, the main focal point is right is like where is japan right now what, yeah 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 because these characters is they're really just sort of in a sort of an allegory for what's going on at the time you know and yeah, and yeah I, I, I like you you mentioned uh, mike that they're a found family i also really appreciated that and they went in that oh man too. really loved it it was uh, great yeah there there's this uh there's this sequence this um montage where they're sh- they're becoming a happy family and i was just like oh my gosh this is going to be so devastating when like <laughs> when things like fall apart on them oh man and there's there's a lot here about like PTSD and like the willingness to to live again or to heal after dealing with PTSD that I found really compelling and really realistic. It's like uh, when when you go when you're basically told your whole purpose is to die and then you keep living and then you wonder if you are dead and you're just living in hell or something. There's a lot of things your mind does. Um, that so this is a Shikshima right um, and. I think that's the main character's name. Um, yeah, you can say Ko- Koichi. Koichi is Koichi. a lot easier to. Yeah, his yeah. last name is uh. It, yeah, it's a little harder Shikishima. to pronounce. Shikishima-san. Yes. Uh, but yeah, like the fact that he he has this whole like inner turmoil, and and you know, it's a whole journey towards wanting to heal again and to live again. I just found it so fascinating and and realistic, and that's where. It, I, I found it so compelling that this is happening in the middle of a monster movie. Like, man, it's genius that they were able to pull this off. It felt like we were watching a, a character drama. Um, if that's the Spielberg uh, inspiration, I feel like. Yeah. You know? yeah I mean, and you even got the guys on the boat, you know? <laughs> yeah. So you know, I, I love how there's a, let's, let's, there's a group of, not just that family, but there's also a group of friends uh, yeah sort of in the yes not as much in the territory but very close to it and and, and the hatching of a plan and right like, they're all different to... they all have different skill sets and they bring uh to the table when when they need to i i really yeah. love that it's awesome yeah yeah the, I mean, the even... guys on the boat i really love them too <laughs> yeah yeah like like how he uses his uh pilot skills you know he's like a like he, he shoots p- other planes, you know, th- using his uh, I mean, as as a pilot, but he's able to transfer those skills to the boat and to take out the mines. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a great scene, and I I think another part that I love about sort of like the first half of the movie is they're showing you a devastated Japan, but it's also a Japan that you, you already feel like it's at the brink of a change right and it kind of did that with noriko uh, the one line that stuck out to me was there's this part where she says she, she's finally decided to find a job uh yeah uh working at a department store and koichi says oh that's so sudden and she said her her line was well for me it hasn't felt like that you know and i thought that was a sort of a you know an interesting way of saying well 
<laughs> this is also another way this this country is going going to change as well um yeah, yeah. did you feel like the death of Uishi, uh was that surprising to you guys did you buy that she died like or did you know that did you have a feeling that she was going to come back uh i didn't feel like this is more my j-pop or J not j-pop or japanese pop culture knowledge like me minami hamabi is hamabi i don't know if i'm saying her last name yeah. she's, i've seen her in other movies like i just saw her recently in shin kamen rider common rider and she's she's sort of like an getting to be a big deal so i didn't think they were just gonna get rid of her uh yeah you know i was watching the movie i, I definitely had that feeling at least yeah, and I, I, I wanted it to be real for the sake of the drama. Um, but but I was so invested in uh Shikshima's uh character journey that when he finds out at the end she lived, I was like I was I was crying with them. Like I genuinely felt the emotions of that moment and that impact. So yeah, really I did job. too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was thinking, geez. man, no, no Godzilla movie has actually made me feel that way. I was, yeah. I was like, wow, oof, I get that lump in the throat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm like, oh, they're gonna do sequels. I thought this was, yeah. I think we're we're jumping to the end here, but man, I thought this would have been if there was ever gonna be a Godzilla that could stand alone, it, it would have been this one, but yeah. So well, okay, so the po that little uh, stinger tease at the end. What is that? So he's still alive. Looks like yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't mean they're gonna do a sequel. I mean, they've done other Godzilla movies where you know something happens to Godzilla, but they sort of hint at a sequel. But we've never always seen the sequel. So that's true. Like, yeah, it'll, it'll remain to be seen. I feel like this one has a better chance of getting a direct sequel than well it made so much money yeah yeah it, it, and it's just getting so critically acclaimed i i have thought about this uh too i wonder if sort of for me personally um i wonder if this movie made a bigger impact because uh you know in a weird way you know one of the biggest movies of the year was oppenheimer and that sort of dealt a lot with sort of how the atomic bomb was being made and in a strange way although this one's got a monster now almost feels like the spiritual sequel to to that movie because you're seeing the flip side yeah the companion of, of, piece right it, it's right. like a companion piece right oppenheimer's always like oh what what am i gonna do to these people and we have a movie where you actually see exactly what happens to these to these people too and yeah. uh I, I think that's really interesting it's just uh you know and also this post-world war ii japan's not really an era that gets too or the immediate um era of occupation and reconstruction isn't an uh, area that gets covered a lot. I, I, I do have to say that, uh, you know, my wife and I were, you guys know this, Alice and I were in a uh, trip throughout Japan uh, about a month ago. We kept seeing Godzilla minus one, you know, uh, <laughs> merch everywhere. And they have these official Godzilla stores and some of the department stores, the Parco department stores. And as well as like, I think Lawson was also trying to sell like, you know, Godzilla branded, coffee that you get in the convenience oh. store so we, we were really eager to see this movie once we came back but i think the thing that really kind of hit me was that uh i took her to revisit uh, she's never been but i've been before to revisit the hiroshima uh peace museum and you know in the, it's a very sobering walk 
because you kind of see the firsthand accounts, all the, all the tattered and bloody clothing and, and some of the, you know, wall where someone's shadow has been sort of frozen into place. You see all that stuff there. And, and, and they, they talk a lot about sort of the immediate aftermath of the bombing in Hiroshima, how there was like black rain that came down minutes after uh and 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 there's this one part where koichi thinks he's lost noriko and then he, he's looking at godzilla with this hatred and this scene really hit me yeah he just screams at godzilla and then suddenly the black rain oh that was crazy not him i'm yeah. like man oh. Yo, oof that really that really hit me too yeah well like yeah. and then I, I feel like i haven't seen this before but the the heat ray that godzilla shoots out of his mouth is often referred to as the atomic breath and um it if it's atomic like you would think it would create like a mushroom cloud right Right. yeah and we've never seen that happen before in a godzilla movie the the effects of it and and i thought that was like oh wow yeah like we've never seen that happen yeah and, and the, yeah you're right and the way they reveal it is because they, they it, he does shoot off the atomic breath before that right. scene in Ginza, right? But you only see a him and he destroys the battleship, right? And, yeah. and, but you don't really see him do it. Just the effect of sort of his spines coming out and then popping back in. I, I was like, yeah. man, why is that so yeah, powerful? That was so cool. Yeah, yeah I was, I was uh, listening to an interview with the director. So he was trying to mirror nuclear rod sort of going in, back into a reactor whoa and i was wow. like oh wow that's why wow. there's something about that that resonated i think so that's amazing it's a conscious level yeah it's pretty amazing yeah all right that, let me, that let makes me... him even more of an allegory for like you know the nuclear bomb and stuff and so yeah sorry to cut you off mike but... yeah what i just wanted to ask when did these movies do these movies release on like Blu-ray uh, in the U.S. or do you have to like import them? I think they'll be out in the U.S. I think I, I, I it's think too so, big yeah. of a movie. Yeah, I think there's it's just easier to find foreign movies now too. You know, I think even Shin Godzilla got a U.S. release if I'm it not did. mistaken. Yeah, and you could find it for like I was just looking at so I have it already, but you could find it on Amazon Prime for like less than five bucks right now or something. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and because it's done so well, I'd imagine they they jump at the chance of doing a U.S. release for this. So, yeah, Toho's first uh, distributed movie. I was kind of surprised to find that out. Right, it's the first time they distributed a movie internationally. I kind of really? thought they've done. Yeah, I thought. So. I remember seeing Godzilla two thousand in the theaters. I thought they did it too, but I read somewhere that was the first one. I was like, oh, okay. Well. Yeah, <laughs> always something yeah. new. I mean, seventy years, and there's always something. You know, I love that. I love that it's still finding ways to be fresh and having firsts. That's awesome. Yeah, and it's not like uh, you know, there's been a lot of ups and downs with the franchise too. But just to have a movie like Minus One come out and do what it did is it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What a time to be a Godzilla fan. Yeah, what a time. Yeah, I think some people are saying, "Oh, well, this is way better than the American ones." I agree, it is, but that doesn't mean you can't enjoy those ones either. So we got yeah. a lot of options. Yeah, it so. seems like the American ones are now the campy ones, and then yeah, yeah. If, if the Japanese are going to continue to make drama Godzilla dramas like this, like dude, I'm, <laughs> I'm sign me up. Like, I, I yeah, give give me both. You know, I want I want some theme park rides, and I want some like you know hard you know 
uh, fine dining type stuff, you know? Yes. All right. Uh, so we got three movies to talk about in this episode. So we're just going to wrap up our discussion on Godzilla minus one. Uh, we're going to move on to the boy and the heron. So uh, Joe, thanks for joining us uh, for this discussion on Godzilla. It's definitely inspired me to go and look into some of the older films. So I'll definitely be doing my homework there. All right. The boy and the heron. Another post World War II story. I know, I know. Yeah. There's just there's a lot of similarities between these movies. Um, so Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron, supposedly his last film. We'll see about that. Uh, but yeah, let's just go into non-spoiler discussion on this. Albert, you're we know how big of a Miyazaki fan you are. Um, huge. <laughs> huge, massive. Yeah. So I want to start with you. What what obviously what are your thoughts on the film? But in addition to that. How do you think The Boy and the Heron stacks up to the rest of Miyazaki's filmography? That's tough. And that also is for tough. Yeah. Also for for non-Miyazaki fans like me. Uh what would your recommendations be to prepare to watch this movie? Cuz I actually went in blind, you know, I didn't really know what it was about. I didn't watch any trailers. Um and I wa- I don't I don't really I've seen his movies like once, like some of his movies. And so I don't really have like context. I know this is supposed to be his last movie. So uh, I'm wondering if he was trying to say something here. So do you have any recommendations to to prepare to watch this movie? Or do you think you just go in like... I do. You, I actually... Yeah, okay, I do. Okay. Yeah, for sure. I So this isn't the first time Hayao Miyazaki has sort of done a movie that's about him, right? I think uh, Totoro was sort of semi-autobiographical in the sense that when he was growing up in post-World War II, uh, you know, his his mother at one point was sick, so his dad took him to live in the countryside. And 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 that story is sort of about about that. Um I think um I think being that Miyazaki has very strong anti-war sensibilities, I think, you know, another movie that's worth checking out would be, you know, Princess Mononoke, which I actually am willing to bet you'll you'll like a lot because there's there are parts in that movie that feel more like a Kurosawa movie than it does a Miyazaki movie. Um and I also think that uh not one of my favorite movies, but I think The Wind Rises also is a movie about how Miyazaki, you know, to give some context into what makes him tick. Um, you have to go back to his youth and his parents actually ran, I think, one of the Mitsubishi zero plane um, factories uh, during World War II. And he loved planes because of it, but he also kind of hated how his family was profiteering off war. And and I think that movie sort of deals with his conflicted feelings about that. And and to to, to that movie's detriment, because you kind of feel like this push and pull between these different ideas. So I think those movies are really good companion pieces um, to uh, uh, to the boy and the heron. Um, 
yeah and oof i you know what to say about miyazaki he's the greatest living animator alive uh i didn't say it i think every animator working today would say it too there's a attention to detail in life i think he he he's so good at that man i, I just don't really see anybody else doing that um uh the same way and and, and the trends is his his no not even so much the trends but sort of like the monumental influences had on animators can't be understated at all i think hayao miyazaki makes movies for hayao miyazaki at the end of the day and i think with the boy and the heron he's definitely made a movie for himself so that's why it's sort of difficult to compare it to other miyazaki movies because i think the other movies particularly the ones before you know Spirit of the Way and before that are Empanio maybe are very, very sort of have a lot of appeal to mass audiences, but this one doesn't. You could tell he's working some things out. It's a personal statement about his life and career. Um, and I, I think we can get more into that <laughs> before I ramble any further. I kind of like to hear a more Paul's thoughts too. Oh, wait, before we hear from Paul, uh, how do you think this film stacks up to the rest of his filmography like where would you it's, place it's it? tough i mean i wouldn't say miyazaki is like spielberg in the sense that i think <laughs> i hate to say it but his most influential and greatest uh movies probably happened before 2001 and and he could have retired at that time and still been a legend but he, so i feel like every time every movie we've gotten since spirited away while not as i don't think any of those movies are as great as his previous ones i think you know, uh, I, I just feel lucky that we're getting them. I think The Boy and the Heron is is, uh, is uh, no exception. I definitely do think it's a better way to end his career than The Wind Rises was uh, because it's such, so much more of a a, a, uh, a personal movie. Um, yeah, but boy, um, it's a movie I'm still thinking about uh, and processing, to be frank. All right. Great. Awesome. Thanks for your thoughts, Paul. Welcome. What do you think about the boy and the heron? Uh, yeah. So when you asked us to do an episode on this, I was kind of like, oh man, because <laughs> it's a, uh, it's a, it's a lot. It's uh, thinking about this movie makes my head hurt. Um, it's definitely his most Miyazaki's most chaotic film. So I definitely had to kind of put myself in the mindset of like. You know, there's so many things that he's trying to say with this film, um, so many interpretations. And at the end of the day, I don't think we'll really scratch the surface uh, with this. But at the end of the day, I really enjoyed it. Um, it was one of those films that I liked more after I saw it and thought about it for a while, uh, because initially when I watched it, I was like, that was really confusing. I don't understand what just happened. Um so I think to rank it now would be difficult because I think it would only get better over time. Um, but as it stands, I mean, I think, you know, just to just to keep on the the love session for Miyazaki. I mean, I think he's one of the greatest directors ever. I think his filmography is probably like up there with Stanley Kubrick as like the like two most objectively like perfect filmographies, I think. Uh, just the 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 stuff that he was able to tackle with like all of his films um you know albert said earlier like he he kind of 
infuses himself in his films in some of his films i feel like he does that in all of his films um and i don't think any director does it more and better than miyazaki um and this one is like so much so an autobiographical feature film where it's like it's hard to tell like where miyazaki ends and begins like with his own personal life um so in, in terms of like doing your homework um, I think you have to watch all of his movies before watching this one. Um, not because, you know, they're linked or anything like that, like because there's like a multiverse or whatever, but really just because of how his themes are, uh, how, how he puts himself and all of the themes that he cares about in, in all of his movies. And so I think with this, with this movie, it really is like a culmination of everything. So in terms of how much I enjoyed it, I mean, uh, I agree with Albert. It's it's a much better swan song than The Wind Rises, which is, in my opinion, his weakest film. Um, and as it stands right now, I think The Boy and the Heron is probably his third weakest film. So I, I put I put it above The Wind Rises and Ponyo. But I mean, how dare you? Ponyo? <laughs> uh, yeah, how I mean, dare you? <laughs> but, but not to say that, you know, none of them are bad. I don't think. The Wind Rises is bad. Um, I think all of his films are near tens, uh, in my opinion. So, I mean, to say that it's the third weakest, like, really doesn't say much because his filmography, again, is it's just, it's incredible. So, and and I would just like to note that, like, I grew up only watching Totoro and Castle in the Sky. So, I was really not a big fan of Miyazaki until like the pandemic honestly because when it was all put on hbo max that's when i i was like oh i might as well just watch all of them again um i had never seen princess monoke uh until then so i mean that's kind of crazy but uh and, and prior to that i always thought Mizaki was just like you know like i knew he was like people said he was the goat you know like john lasser attributes a lot of his success to to Mizaki and, and, and pixar in general and all that stuff I was like, yeah, he's good. You know, I grew up loving Castle in the Sky and Totoro, but then it really wasn't until the pandemic where I was like, okay, this guy's a freaking goat of animation. So, oh wow, uh, Paul, you put it so more eloquently than I could. I'm, I'm sort of still processing the Boy Heron, so I'm, it's just it's easy for me to sort of stumble and fumble around my feelings about it. But uh, you know, thank you for articulating that in a way that I couldn't. And also, I'm. I probably look like the surprise cat meme when you said that. <laughs> I always th- thought you were always a Miyazaki fan for a while. So for you to say that you discovered most of his movies uh, during the uh, pandemic is is huge. But it's also like great in the sense that um, for me, my rediscovery of Miyazaki was I also grew up on Totoro, Castle in the Sky, Kiki's Silly Service. I always thought of them as kids films. It wasn't until you know I was in high school, I was taking up animation class at nearby community college and one of the teachers was one of uh, the principal animators for the little mermaid and um you know for ariel and he he had said you 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 all really need to pay more attention to hayao mizaki i mean disney animators revere him like he's he's the god of animation i remember hearing that from other people i knew in the industry at the time too and i I think i I was like okay i'm I'm gonna pay a little more attention to his stuff and his style and see what makes him different and the most obvious thing i think that came to me being that i was already into anime at the time was that he wasn't afraid to waste paper 
<laughs> like other anime uh, movies where you know they may freeze the background maybe the principal characters move and that there's like a lot of subtlety in, in his movements and also princess mononoke just blew me away it's actually my favorite movie of all time because of how relevant it's become more and more about the push and pull between humanity and nature i find that the themes that it describes become more and more relevant all the time but uh That being said, you know, I my rediscovery of him was during high school, and I I just I've been in love with 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 his movies ever since. For me, every time I go back to Japan, a trip to the museum or uh, this last time Ghibli Park, Ghibli Park is like a pilgrimage for me. I have to do it. Mm. But the fact that you said that you discovered most of the, rediscovered most of his films during the pandemic as as a full grown adult, and you 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 like you know think he's like the go of animation is is It's it's reassuring, like oh, there's something about his movies that can still hit hard, you know, at any stage of life we're in, right? So that's amazing. That's no, amazing. yeah, I, I I've definitely grown up around the imagery of Miyazaki's movies. Like I, I always knew about Porco Rosso, Nausicaa, uh, Kiki's, and I, I've just always been surrounded, like growing up, like with those images in my head. But I had only watched them like once, so I really didn't remember anything. Um, and then yeah, so. Thank God for the for having them on HBO Max because yeah. it, it was such an experience to watch all of them. Um, and you know, to, to your credit, I mean, I, I love that Princess Mononoke is your favorite uh, film of all time. Um, I even though Castle in the Sky is my favorite Miyazaki movie, more so because that's the one I grew up watching. I think objectively, Princess Mononoke is is his best film. That's funny you said that. Princess Mononoke is my personal favorite, but for, objectively, I almost feel spirited the way it is. But that's oh. the thing about Miyazaki. There's it's hard for people to choose. You know, uh, he's got so many uh, great movies out there, and 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 you know now he has the Boy and the Heron. Yeah, it's hard to figure out where that belongs in his long list of achievements. But I, I will say this about the Boy and the Heron: it is probably the I can't think of any animated movie. That is so. That was done so personally than that one. Yeah, for me, agreed. or or in in such a surreal way. I I've I thought about it. I've thought about other movies outside of Disney. I or even other movies in anime. It's 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 really hard uh, to come up with one like that. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. So unlike you guys, uh, I actually never watched Miyazaki's films until. Princess Mononoke in eighth grade, and I just watched it once. I was like, "This is cool," but then you know, it, it didn't it, like it didn't blow me away or anything back then. And then I watched Spirited Away in college, and then a few of his other movies I saw later on as an adult. I saw Totoro, Howl's Moving Castle, and Nausicaa as an adult. And I guess how I would describe my feelings about Miyazaki is a lot like how I feel about Scorsese and Fellini. And I acknowledge that they're all geniuses. They're groundbreaking auteur filmmakers. They changed the industry. They changed the medium, the form. They're some of the greatest to ever do it. So I admire and respect Miyazaki, like how I admire and respect Scorsese and Fellini. And there are a lot of their films that I have enjoyed. I will show up for their films and give them the attention that they deserve. But they're just not filmmakers that I'm particularly in love with. Like I think the admiration, respect is there, but then there's that X factor where I don't come away moved by their work. And again, I think they're brilliant, but this is just my own personal thing. Like I just don't come away with 
with uh, as deep of a, an admiration and appreciation for uh, their films. And so The Boy and the Heron actually didn't really do much to change my feelings about Miyazaki. This all could change, okay? Because this past weekend, I introduced uh, Totoro to my kids. They actually watched it in Mandarin dub. Uh, and I wanted to do it for two reasons. Number one is because I'm trying to speak, you know, exclusively in Mandarin with my kids. And it's just a constant battle between uh, Mandarin and English in our home. So I feel like showing them a movie like Totoro, like, let's see, first of all, if they'll, they'll like it. And if they do like it, hey, they get to uh, try to comprehend the movie in, in Mandarin. And so it was actually very successful. Uh, the other reason I wanted to show it to him is because I wanted to, you know, give his films another shot. So I'm watching uh, Totoro. I, I have like a box set that I borrowed from a friend and we're going to try to go through uh, his films. So yeah, I, I will uh, I'll get back to you guys uh, at a later point. Hopefully if he makes another film or something. Uh, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but maybe my my feelings will change. The Boy okay. and the Heron though. It, yeah, S sorry. Slight sorry. tangent before you, before you get into your review. You don't like Scorsese, dude? So it's not like I don't like them. I said I admire them. I respect them. Right, uh, right. But like yeah, you don't yeah, like, like love his movies. I, I always thought you did. Yeah, I don't think I. W I wouldn't say like I love like his movies. Like, like I think his Goodfellas or Casino or like they're great movies. Yeah. But like, are they in my like top ten? Like, they're not movies that I would like. like oh, I gotta rewatch this. Like, oh, like, I get it. Yeah, yeah. For, for example, yeah. like like Heat, right? Heat is like I want to rewatch that movie. Godfather, I want to rewatch that. Goodfellas, I'm like, uh, you know, like it, it feels like I need to be in the right mood to watch that movie. Um, that's just how I feel about Scorsese. You're you're telling uh, me you don't you don't feel a hankering to watch The Irishman every now and then to just <laughs> to to just put aside three and a half hours of your time. I I, I watched that at once and then I'm like, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got, I got your point. <laughs> Um, okay yeah yeah so i mean I, I admire and respect all of them they're just not like it's not like kubrick right kubrick like he just changed my entire paradigm of what films could be so i, I think for me kubrick uh kubrick's films have moved me more i guess than scorsese and miyazaki fellini is just he's so out there you know and actually miyazaki reminds me a lot of fellini and and like you're just seeing things happen on screen and you're just you're just wondering what like the thing that you're thinking about is WTF like what the heck is this and what is going on uh and the boy and the heron again like i said uh I, I it didn't really do much to change my feelings about Miyazaki and i had a lot of WTF moments uh as the movie got more and more uh, into the fantastical um i think there's a clear line in this movie between the grounded realism and the fantastical and i think i was really enjoying the film when it was uh, set in the real world, but then as it transitioned to the fantasy realm, I think I just got more and more lost. And you're just seeing a lot of crazy, surreal images, things that, that are really out there that you have no context for. And it, it kind of like a Fellini film. And I think, uh, like I said, this is where I appreciate the work, but I don't feel emotionally invested in it because I just feel like it, as an audience member, I, I start to feel uh, alienated uh, in, in a sense. So I, I think for our spoiler discussion, I really want you guys to take the reins. And I'm gonna, I kind of want to pick your brains on this film. Uh, so let's just start spoilers uh, now for for uh, The Boy and the Heron. 
No, no, you're still holding on. Let go. I want to tell you my interpretation of the film. Okay, so first of all, uh, I think it's a it's about a boy named Mahito. He's grappling with the radical changes in his life uh, post World War II, his, his or during World War II. Some uh, his his mother died in a fire in the hospital, so he's dealing with that. Then he has to deal with his father remarrying another woman named Natsuko, who is his mother's sister, his aunt. And then she's pregnant with his uh, half-brother. And so he has a cordial but cold relationship with uh, Natsuko, who is trying to make, trying her best to make Mahito feel at home. So my thinking was that the fantasy elements that take up three quarters of this movie would be about uh, the inner struggles that Mahito is uh, experiencing. Uh, but we, in the fantasy world, we we go we see like an oceanic realm. We see these parakeets. Uh, we see like a wizard that who wants to pass his watch over the world to Mahito. It, you know, it's all we interesting and weird. But like, I didn't, I didn't, I guess um, it was harder for me to see the connections to the uh, <clears throat> to the real world. I know there's elements of reincarnation that's involved. So I know that that was like a, a pretty big theme. I mean, Paul, I'm interested in hearing what you what, what your thoughts are on on what I'm about to say. But I, I kind of see this movie as sort of a compilation of 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 Miyazaki's life and work. When you said that, you know, the first half of the movie is is sort of set in the real, mostly in the real world, and then it goes right up to fantastical. I mean, that's that's kind of his career in a nutshell. I think maybe with the exception of Nausicaa, uh, you can make the argument that, you know, the first 20 years of his career, at, you know, or making movies, not not, the, not counting the time he spent Toei Animation doing TV shows, he was mostly sort of doing movies that were sort of send some version of the quote-unquote real world with some fantastical elements before he went full-blown fantasy uh more so i think maybe after spirit of the way and after that um i i think you're really just seeing his life and career play out allegorically also um uh i i think i've heard a lot of um analysis out there of the movie being that uh the old wizard in the fantasy world is actually Sao Takahata and you know who he is. He's the director of 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 Grave of the Fireflies and Palm Poco and all these other great Ghibli movie, but he's also known as a hard head head hard headed a man who's probably more of a hard driving perfectionist than Miyazaki is too. And and I think Miyazaki always saw him as a as a mentor and uh for a while um so i think it's really just miyazaki working out all his feelings that in a way i kind of almost like and go into the boy and the heron without being familiar with miyazaki's work like to a lesser degree like watching Spiel spielberg's the fablemans and without having like seen et or or saving private ryan and or indiana jones and <laughs> sort of understanding how those parts sort of come together mm, you know I see. In, in hindsight so yeah it's uh it's uh, it's it's gonna be hard for me to talk about this movie without just like going through a stream of consciousness rambling but i will try my just best go, just go for it because i'm like in the dark so just I, i'm sure i can pick a lot of uh nuggets from what you're you're gonna say yeah um 
So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with what Albert was saying. I think the movie is very autobiographical, um, especially the first half. I mean, Miyazaki himself as a child, he he witnessed a hospital fire. He uh, his father worked for uh, military like manufacturing airship parts or, or whatever, which which is in part of why he's so fascinated with airplanes, um, which you would see in like most of his movies. Um, and like Albert said earlier, you know, Miyazaki's mother uh, suffered uh, spinal tuberculosis for many years. So um, he she she was bedridden and, and I guess in a sense, like a little absent minded or not absent minded, just absent uh, for, from um, for a, a good chunk of his life. Um, and also his mother gifted him with the book, How Do You Live?, uh, which is also in the movie when the child Makito receives the book, How Do You Live? Uh, and for those who may not be familiar, this movie was originally supposed to be titled How Do You Live? Uh, but then I think probably because of like American producers or marketers who are like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. Let's just dumb it down and call it The Boy and the Heron, which is like a, I think a much inferior name uh, for the film. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this, this movie, uh, a lot of it, yeah, it, it is confusing. I feel like at first it doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, but I, I do feel like it is Miyazaki kind of um, wrestling with himself um, because there are, I, I feel like there are interpretations where Miyazaki is both Makito and the grand uncle, the wizard, uh, because there is, and I've, I've heard of um, Albert's, uh, you know, interpretation that, the, the wizard is also Isao uh, Takahara as well, because, you know, this movie originally was written to kind of highlight the relationship between him, the, the, the two of them. And also the, who's the other producer, Albert? I, I forget his name. Uh, Suzuki, Suzuki, Toshio Suzuki. Oh, Suzuki. Yeah. 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 That's so, Heron. Yeah, that's the uh, story I've heard. Yeah. So I think the the movie was, was supposed to be about like the relationship between them, but then because, uh, Takahata passed away. Um, he, he, I think Miyazaki felt compelled to like change the the movie about the relationship um, between the boy and the heron, I guess, which is why they they, you know, decided to maybe go with that name. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think I think there's a there's a lot to 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 tackle here. I mean, I think the the ending is very symbolic of Miyazaki's career. Um, because the the one of the central themes is like you know the wizard proposes to Mahito like I want you to carry on my my work I want you to be able to uh, you know uh, create this perfect world um, but then at the end Mahito decides not to because he would rather live in a world where uh, he can make mistakes that are suffering um, and, and I think that is very much uh, in line with how Miyazaki views his own art um, because art like creating art you have to have suffering in it right you have to have a, an amount of pain uh, of some sort so that you can really uh, kind of feel the juxtaposition between pain and like joy um, and so I think with that being said like he is kind of having like a reckoning with his own career because this movie could also serve as like an allegory of like who's going to be the inheritor you know once he passes on right who's going to like spearhead studio ghibli like once he's done because he he's already made the mistake of saying he's going to retire you know a few times but then he just can't help himself but keep working right and 
Uh, it's very well documented that he's pretty disappointed in his son as an animator. <laughs> um, and I think his son has has been quoted saying that he gets uh, his father gets zero marks as a father, but full marks as a director and an animator, which is so depressing uh, to hear. Um, and so I, th I feel like this movie is kind of also him reflecting on his career as a whole and how like he um, I think there's a little bit of regret. Like, I think there is regret that, you know, he has made an, a really impressive body of work, but his family has been like entirely secondary in his life. Right. Uh, and, and that I feel like plays a lot into Mahito's decision to be like, you know, in the end, he says he is full of malice. So he cannot, you know, be this, the wizard that the grand uncle wants him to be. Uh, so I think a lot of it is really about like his uh, insistence to keep creating art, no matter how uh, uncertain it, uh, the future will be, you know, whether or not Studio Ghibli will cease to exist once he's gone or, you know, whether or not his his art will, you know, last, um, I guess, outlast him, which, you know, to us, of course, it will. But. Um, I, I think these are some of the insecurities that he's kind of grappling with in, in his film. And uh, it comes in a lot of forms, um, but, uh, you know, I, I want to stop here for now and just kind of um, hear more of your guys' thoughts. I, I, you know, the best way I can describe seeing this movie is it's almost like looking at one of Van Gogh's paintings that he did when he was in the throes of his depression. And in looking at it, and even though you can't always articulate what you're say, saying, something about the way he uses the thick paint, the brush strokes to the way he orients them in a way that makes you feel like what he's feeling at the time uh, is kind of what you get out of it. And and that's kind of how I, I see this movie. It's, it's very surrealist in that sense, very expressionist in this sense. Even some of the wilder fantasy parts, I didn't feel the same type of whimsy that I would from like, you know, his other movies that that did the same thing where I introduced new creatures and and you, you always felt like there was something in there that was there for a reason, but it was for a very personal reason. Um, and yeah, it's it, it, I I think it's 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 almost like in that sense it's almost like looking at a painting for a long time and trying to figure out something. You feel it, but you can't quite articulate it. And and yeah, that's pretty much how I still feel about it. I definitely haven't gotten a chance to watch it a second time, but I I think eventually I'll 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 have to. It's not a straightforward piece of storytelling. Uh, you know, I I, I in a way, I, I think that's probably why it's 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 garnering, you know, some of the critical praise it has been because it's it's just so unique in that sense. Yeah, I, I think it's a really dense film. Uh, you know, if if you were to compare it with his other works, definitely Spirited Away is you know similar uh, in the sense that it's kind of like an otherworldly coming of age story, right? But I think for this one. Yuzaki really infuses himself with the film a lot more so than than his other previous works. Um, yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, but... and it, it's uh, it, you know, fr from a out like a broad glance, right? I, I feel like the film is really just like 
Mahito is trying to come to grips with accepting Natsuko as her new, as his new mother and moving on from the grief of uh, losing his, his, his biological mother. Right. But, uh, and, and it, it takes him like an insane, like otherworldly journey to be able to accept that. Uh, but because of the chaotic nature of the film, you know, so much stuff happens. Um, and it, I, I feel like it kind of just is a reflection of like, Miyazaki's upbringing where you know he he grew up in turbulent times right and it it, it's I feel like for him as a kid he had to he had to grow up really fast he had to make a lot of decisions uh that you know parents probably wouldn't want their kids like they wouldn't want to wish their kids to have to make those decisions you know so so early on in their lives and I think that you know through the journey that he that Makito has with the with the heron right that that's that's even one aspect of reconciliation, right? Because the the heron initially approaches Mahito with with a with an illusion of like, oh, you can save your mom. Uh, she she's alive and well in in our world, so you need to come seek her out. And so when he comes to to see to see her, right, he he gets lured into the castle or whatever. Uh, we find that the heron's uh, impression of his mother is like, you know, it's fake. It's it's it. It literally like melts away, right? Um, and so, I feel like when Mahito was growing, like going through that grief, that stage of grief, like he had all the reason to to try and hurt the heron, right? Which he does. He tries to shoot the heron, um, but then, so, but then eventually, you know, throughout the film, he kind of becomes friends with the heron, and the heron kind of has like a redemptive arc uh, in and of himself, right? So. Um, I think that's kind of Miyazaki's way of saying like you 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 have to take the good with the bad. And Miyazaki's previous films have always been about like kind of more of like a morally gray. Like it's it's not black and white. It's like there's clearly like you know the quote unquote bad guys in his movies always have like reasons for doing what they do. Um, and I, you know I can't pick apart what the Heron's reasons are doing uh, is is doing what he does. But I think for Miyazaki to kind of internalize it through this movie he's basically having Mahito like it's like you know I I didn't agree with you know what the heron was doing but I'm gonna help him out um I'm gonna put a cork in his beard or in his beak or whatever right and um yeah I mean and then in in the end like the the heron also like kind of saves him too right so I I think it's just kind of his way of like saying like this like you have to grow up fast and like this is just one of the life lessons, uh, you know, y- you are going to be lied to. Uh, there's going to be, you know, deception that happens in your life, but you're just going to have to kind of like move on with it, uh, make peace with it. So, I mean, that was like one of the takeaways that I had. Yeah, I, I think another takeaway I had in that sense, another cathartic relationship Mahito has is with the girl Himi, who, who turns out to be his mother in a younger form. And I thought that was... Um, uh, that part, it was actually, um, that whole subplot was also something I really, actually, really enjoyed seeing because you, you can tell that, you know, the approval that he was seeking for his mother was something that was granted to him at the end of the movie, but although not sort of in the traditional way, but but it was there. Um, so I thought that was also interesting uh, too, but yeah, I, you, you can definitely see Miyazaki reconciling with different figures in his life and trying to make peace with it. And it's kind of interesting to see him do it at such a 
you know, at the ripe age of 83, I guess. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, yeah. And, 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 you know, obviously there's still issues at Studio Ghibli, right? They barely pulled together enough animators to, to make the boy in the heron because when Miyazaki said The Wind Rises was going to be his last film, everybody was like, after that movie, and they were like, we're off to do other things, right? Even the, if Studio Ghibli doesn't continue on, there are a lot of folks out there that used to work with Studio Ghibli that can, that's, they're still doing great work, uh, but they also definitely have these conflicting relationships with Miyazaki uh, that aren't too different than, ironically, what he had with Takahata or what Mahito has with, with the wizard, which is sort of a fascinating parallel. Listening to you guys talk about this film, I feel like it should come with a disclaimer. Like you gotta watch, <laughs> you gotta watch everything and know about his personal life uh, in order to kind of pick apart this movie and and get the meaning of it. Yeah, it's. I mean, you know, I I, I don't blame you for not loving this film, especially if you didn't you know watch his previous films like it more recently, I guess, or or are as familiar with his work. Because yeah, it is like pretty it's it's pretty inaccessible um but i i think it's it, it is really meaningful i think it's his most ambitious film and and it really is like the most meaningful movie he's ever put together and like what albert said like he's doing this for himself and and not for other people at this point because i think he, a part of him like really does not care <laughs> um but uh yeah like i mean even the ending right i mean i i felt like the ending where he returns to the real world and then they're just like okay we're gonna move back to tokyo and then that's it right um I, I feel like that was is very emblematic of who miyazaki is as a person where it's like just you just got to carry on right every yeah. day is another day um there's no disney style like closure like everyone hugs in the end and and everyone's happy together like it's really just like you just got to move on with your life um you know make peace with with the good and the bad that's happened and just keep moving on um and uh yeah i mean i, I think there's there's a lot to say about this film. I mean, I I, I was thinking about like the parakeets uh, in general. I love the parakeets. Oh yeah. man, yeah, yeah, that the parakeet king. Jeez, yeah, what the heck was that all about? I'll never look at them the same way again. Yeah, sure. it's uh, it, I I saw reviews people saying like this is uh Miyazaki on his I hate birds tour uh type of thing where, you know, slandering the the birds or whatever. But um, I mean, a, a part of me just kind of feels like. The parakeets are they they resemble like giving power to things that shouldn't have power like greed or envy or malice uh which is why i feel like they they're so goofy right because it's like it's like primitive feelings or something that have evolved farther than they should have and you know it could be a possible slight against capitalism right because the parakeets goal is to hold natsuko hostage yeah, as like bargaining exactly. chips right to to rule the world or whatever um and so and I feel like when, you know, they emerge from the the door, right, they 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 revert back to their bird selves and they start pooping everywhere and stuff like that. It's kind of to just show, you know, that is who they are supposed to be. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there, there's really so much to to unpack yeah. with this. They're, film, they're really so. ugly, too, man. Like he did not yeah. do them any favors that he drew them pretty dang ugly. Yeah, yeah but they're fascinating. I was like, I want to know more about these parakeets. What's their social structure? You know? Yeah, yeah. Like when they showed the like pub and stuff, like they have yeah. like this whole world, and and you know that I feel like that really speaks to the 
strength of Miyazaki because you know especially you know world building is such a is such a hot topic nowadays um and that requires you know sometimes a lot of fancy effects or a lot of like dialogue exposition but i feel like Miyazaki world builds just by drawing you know you know what's in an alleyway right he he brings so much life to each each frame and that's why watching this in IMAX was like just a delight because i've never seen any of his films in theater so it was really cool to see, you know, it on such a big screen. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Going back to what you said about the ending, it, you know, a lot of people were, I have heard people say, oh, that ending was really abrupt. I was like, no, it's actually, it's actually very in line with some many of Miyazaki's movies, you know, where, where, you know, people make decisions and then that's it. And, and you're right. There's no perfect outcome. Right. Cause that's not Miyazaki at all. It's not, trying to tell he he's always said that he felt like disney films are very deceptive right they're telling young, they're giving pe young people the wrong images uh or not wrong images but sort of the wrong lessons versus you can have your happy ending miyazaki's always been about you don't have happy endings you just have the strength to go on with life and and uh you know you know and and by making decisions and uh, you know you, we've seen that reflected in princess monoki or even movies he didn't direct but did write uh, like whisper of the heart uh, you know which also had a very abrupt ending that i love but uh you know one one thing to also um mike i don't know if you know this but and our our listeners know this but one of the you know most genius aspects of miyazaki is that uh, the reason why his storyboards or the making of his movies, uh, those books are so, so popular is because his storyboards are the movie. A lot of people will change their storyboards or do something very, very rough and then sort of, you know, fix it up or make it prettier in animation. If you look at his storyboards, they're almost like frame to frame what you see, um, you know, in the final product, and his, his he almost draws it like a comic book, where where the dialogue is also there too. Um, oh wow, and that's he, cool! And he, and he starts from beginning to end; he doesn't jump around. He's literally working through the movie as he goes all the way to the end. And uh, I think maybe that's also what makes his movies feel so powerful because they're organic, and that's just not something you 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 feel from a lot of movies animated or, or live action nowadays. Yeah, thanks for sharing your guys' thoughts on on this film. I think just listening to you guys talk, it's made me rethink my approach, I guess, to to his filmography. Uh, just knowing some of these things about his personal life, it, I mean, it's very interesting, like his relationship with his son and other animators in the studio. Uh, so kind of like Godzilla, man, I, I think I have some homework to do on this one. Um, yeah, I, I think we should uh, wrap up our discussion on The Boy and the Heron, and we have one more movie to talk about, which is uh, Monster. So, yeah, thanks, Albert, for, for all your expertise on Godzilla and Miyazaki on this episode. Thanks for having me. All right. So next up and finally is uh, a film called Monster. ちょっと子供のこと心配してきてるらしい。この先生に叩かれて息子は怪我したんです。誤解を招く点があったかと思われば何にも誤解してないんですよ。
麦の湊君は星川よりってこういじめてるんですよ開けてくださいいつも麦野君を叩いたりしてます麦野こんな先生がいる学校に子供預けられないでしょお母さん僕はかわいそうじゃないよ湊This is、uh, from director Kore Ada. He was nominated, his film、uh, Shoplifters was nominated for Best、uh, International Film a few years ago. And this, out of the three movies that we're going to talk about today, this is the one that's the least known. All right. So I'm just going to read a brief synopsis. We don't usually do this, but I'm going to read a brief synopsis、uh, just so that our listeners have some sense of what this is. It's actually very important that we talked about this movie because I really wanted to highlight this. Alongside、uh, the other films. So, Monster is,、uh, is about、uh, a boy named Minato. He starts to behave strangely, and his mother, Saori, suspects that there's something wrong. So, hearing that one of his teachers is responsible, Saori begins to confront the school for answers. And the truth is more complex than what appears on the surface. So, just a very brief, non spoilery synopsis of what the movie is about. Um, Paul, tell, tell, tell us、uh, what you thought about Monster.、Uh, so, before I go into my thoughts about this movie, I just want to say if you, the viewer, are interested in watching this movie, do not watch the trailer.、Uh, Mike and I watched the trailer、yes. for this after we watched the movie, and it is, I mean, it's one of the worst trailers you could ever have for, for a movie. I mean, Mike and I were just straight up laughing at how ridiculous it was.、Um, and it's,、uh, th- this like, is one of those it's, films. It's, it's bad in that it just literally tells you everything, almost、yeah. everything. Yeah. Be- be- because part of the reason this film is so interesting is because if you go into it not knowing anything or even just hearing the synopsis that Mike uh, uh, said earlier, it's, it- it's so rewarding because it, it makes you. You know, when, when you put together the pieces of this story that starts out like, you know, it's, it's pretty much like a mystery un, un, until the very end.、Um, and so the, the trailer literally has like, I mean, yeah, I, I feel like you could tell like Japanese people put that trailer together because it, I, I feel like it's just like they, they had all these like catchphrases, these like these words,、uh, these buzzwords put together on the screen. It was just literally like the word on the screen saying, like, this is what the movie is about. And it was like, It was like, I, I think it's just like a, like a lost in translation type of thing. But yeah, it was ridiculous. So, so I, 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 plea, I, I make a plea to, for, for those of you who are interested to not watch the trailer,、um, especially the TIFF one.、Uh, that, one that one is the really bad one.、Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I really like this film.、Um, it, it's, it's actually very similar to.、Uh, it, It, in, like score wise, it's very similar to The Boy and the Heron, where it's like,、uh, I, at the end, like I was left processing. I had to think about it a lot,、uh, and I enjoyed it the more I thought about it.、Um, yeah. And, and like I said, it's,、uh, you really have to think about, like, it, it just throws a lot at you, I, I feel like, but it, it's very rewarding to put it together.、Um, I think not everything comes together perfectly, but I think the message that it's trying to tell is pretty beautiful. And it's, one, it's an amazing looking film. I mean, 
if if Japan wasn't on your bucket list already for places where you want to travel, I mean, if you watch this film, you're going to be like, oh my god, I got to go to Japan, man. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I've enjoyed uh, Hirokazu Koreeda. Uh, he's still a relatively new director for me. I absolutely love Shoplifters, and I thought Broker was pretty good, uh, but a little too similar to Shoplifters. Um, but I think Monster is a very ambitious film. Uh, certainly one of the most ambitious films of the year alongside the boy and the heron. Uh, and you know, I, I guess you just gotta, uh, give a hand to Japanese people, man. They're just like really going out there, really going distance with, with their movies this year. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed it for sure. Yeah. Paul and I saw it together. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's great hearing your thoughts again on the film and, uh, I, I feel like I, I love Corey. It is style as well. The director, uh, he makes very quiet films, very simple films, so very simple style. Uh, but they're very contemplative on the lives of the characters. Uh, he's so I, just looking up uh, this director online. Like he's I, I've seen him compared to the styles of uh, Taiwanese filmmakers, Ho Shao Shen and Tsai Ming Liang, as well as his uh, his fellow Japanese filmmaker, uh, Yasujiro Ozu and uh, British director Ken Loach. So, uh, yeah, that's just kind of like a description of like what his movies are like. And I like the the fact that this, this film takes on a story structure that we've seen before, but we don't see often. And I think when it's used, it's usually pretty exciting. And so that was actually one of my favorite things about this movie. Paul, you already mentioned that you kind of peel away the layers of the story and it kind of unravels what's actually happening beneath the surface. And I really appreciate that. It kept me invested and engaged through the entire thing from beginning to end. Uh, the performances, this movie really hinges on child, two child performances. And I think they, they really soared in this film. Like they were so good. They're so charming, uh, bought into it. The adult characters are awesome as well. Uh, so really great acting. Earlier in this episode, uh, we talked about Godzilla minus one. The acting in that movie it was like kind of like anime acting. Uh, this is like prestige film acting. Like they they are really really great actors. And uh, the cinematography is just gorgeous. Very simple shots of nature, uh, of different surroundings in the small town. The use of long lenses. There's some shots and scenes. I just, I was just like, wow. I whispered, wow. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I highly, highly recommend this film, Monster, uh, to our audience, to our listeners. Uh, it is one of my favorite films of 2023. I'm just going to say that outright. I thought it was a masterpiece uh, right when it ended, and it, it just completely delivered what I was looking for um, in terms of like end of the year prestige kind of film. All right, let's talk spoilers on Monster starring now. No, no, you're still holding on. Let go. All right, so the story is basically structured around three different perspectives on the events of the film. First segment is from the mom, Sari Mugino's uh, point, point of view. Second segment is from the teacher, uh, uh, Mishitoshi Hori's point of view. And the third segment is from the son, Minato's point of view. And... The movie begins with Minato acting strangely, and we basically find out by the third act, right, the third segment of the film, that he's actually having same-sex attractions towards uh, one of his classmates, Yori Hoshikawa. And this storytelling structure is used in movies like Rashomon, The Handmaiden, Jackie Brown, 
time crimes. I think it's a great structure, but uh, it can really fall flat if it doesn't deliver by the third act. Uh, the Handmaiden is an example of a film that I thought uh, did not work. Uh, by the third act, it didn't reach that point. It didn't deliver the 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 surprise, the the moment that basically recontextualizes the first two acts. Uh, uh, so I thought Monster is a movie that pulls it off very well. And I, I don't think um, we don't know what the movie truly is until the third act. And that it's actually a coming of age story. So, uh, so I really appreciated this aspect of the film. And that's what, that's what kept me so invested uh, throughout the entire thing. Also special shout out to Ridley Scott's the last duel who also employs this three, uh, three story structure. Uh, very right. similar. Yeah. Uh, and I really enjoyed that movie as well, but um you know, the difference between the that film and this one is, like you said, Mike, you really don't know what this movie is about until the last story. Uh, and and like saying that, uh, oh, it's a coming of age story like this. This guy is like grappling with like his feelings towards another boy. Like You really don't know that until the end, because the first two stories, I mean, Mike and I were like whispering to each other throughout the film. We were like, OK, so clearly this teacher is messed up. He's beating up kids uh he he seems to you know not care about their well-being and then you go to the teacher's story and you're like wait okay hold on maybe this kid is like a spawn of the devil maybe he's like <laughs> yeah. scheming with his with his do- uh with his mom to like cancel this guy right uh, we're like oh it's a it's a commentary on cancel culture blah, blah blah which it is which it is uh but i think i i thought that was like the central you know conceit of the story and then the third the third story like um I think it kind of starts out as the principal's story, right? Like you think it's going to be about her. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. And and then we're like, oh, this is going to be fascinating because uh, for those of you who have seen the movie, the principal is like the most like enigmatic character in the whole movie. Like like, during the apology sequence where (laughs) she's she she makes like the rest of her staff apologize to uh, Saori, we're, we're like, what the freak is going on? Like, why is she so robotic? Like, she kind of reminded me of like, I don't know, like C-3PO or something where it's just like, yeah, just like a very awkward robot, Re- right? Reading some kind of like script that it was it was programmed in her mind. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So so um, I was I, I was curious I, to know I gotta, about that. Yeah, I, I got I got to mention, I'm in education and all those scenes in the school were painful, painful to watch. Like, yeah. I'm like, I can't imagine this seen working in america like a part of me was like okay maybe this is just how like it works in japanese culture like they're just very apologetic they kind of sweep things under the rug or something like that but then the yeah. mom starts calling them out i'm like oh maybe this is not normal in japan yeah. either yeah 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 so I'm, I'm i'm glad that that was here sorry yeah i interrupted you no no yeah um and and i know that like shame shame culture is like really strong in just asian countries in general i mean we see that in korea we see that in japan um and and you know i've i've seen like ceos of japanese like big companies you know they if if they made a mistake they would all bow you know in front of a live audience or something like you know reporters or whatever so i i i think it's not too uncommon but i think to this level it is kind of ridiculous right um but yeah i mean it it was there, there were times where i was like is this like normal like like when the teacher is bowing and then he pops a piece of candy into his mouth, we're both like, "Yeah, like, WTF?" Yeah, 
which of course, you know, we find out later, uh, it's something that like his girlfriend, I guess, is saying like, you know, when you feel like you're freaking out, you're feeling anxiety because, you know, something's too like too serious, like just eat a piece of candy. And we're like, oh, okay, so we're supposed to just go with that. <laughs> but um, he's kind of dumb for doing that in that moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. What a, what a way to filter out advice from your girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think for me, the turning point of this film is when he kind of like breaks character, right? When he when he he kind of like scoffs or he, he kind of laughs at his uh, the mom's comments. And then he eventually says, like, you know, your son is the bully. I was like, oh, shoot, it's going to be this kind of movie, you know? Um, and uh, a boy, I, I mean, I was I was wrong. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I thought yeah. I had the film figured out. I did not, but um, I, I mean, one thing I want to draw to attention is uh, you said uh, after we watched the movie that you knew that this movie was going to have like a three act structure uh, with like the story repeating in the very beginning. So uh, I, I thought that was really crazy. You're like a uh, Batman. So I, I want you to to tell tell us about it. Yeah, it's just because the the film opens with the burning of that. Uh, was that the hostess bar? And so it shows the burning of the hostess bar. It was on fire and the firefighters are trying to put it out. And then we have the opening title. And then it shows uh, it shows the mom and Minato. They go they go onto their balcony to watch the hostess bar burning from their point of view. It, was, it felt like a very subjective uh, viewpoint. And so that's what made me think, okay, so we saw an objective version of the fire and now we're seeing a subjective perspective so uh, i made a mental note to myself like i think this is going to take on one the structure of one of those movies but i was like i hope it's like that because that's i love those kinds of movies but i wasn't like i wasn't like a hundred percent i wasn't like calling it but i was like okay i'm just gonna i'm just gonna keep this in the back of my mind if it happens i'm like oh shoot here we go we're in for a ride that kind of thing and when it did it switched to um uh the teacher's point of view i was like yes all right so let's uh let's humanize this guy. This freaking guy yeah. who seems so dumb from the mom's point of view. Yeah. Yeah, and one thing I appreciate about the film was that you know the last duel does this where it's like part one, part two, part three. But this one does not do that. This one seamless seamlessly kind of like interweaves like the three stories, and you kind of just know as the viewer, like, oh, we're going back in time. We're we're looking at his story. And yeah, like you said, the burning building is like a good kind of like meeting point to kind of, you know, intersect all three of the stories. Um, and, yeah, it's uh, like a shared experience that every character uh, encounters. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I don't know about you, Mike, but I feel like when I watched the first part of the, the movie, I I never truly bought into the to the idea that the teacher was guilty. Like I I I had more of a feeling that the kid was like messed up. Like that was my kind of my guess for for the plot of the movie, but the Yeah, cuz yeah, cuz they didn't fully explain why Minato just jumps out of the car uh for no reason and why he was in the tunnel by himself, like his mom finds him in a tunnel. Like I'm like that can't be all caused by a teacher, you know. So there's more going on to the story, but I wasn't yeah, I wasn't sure. I mean, mm-hmm. A relationship with another boy uh, in his class that was not on my radar at all. Like I was like, yeah, yeah, like you said, the the boy's a spawn of the devil. That that was like probably the thing. Um, so I was, you know, I was actually glad that it wasn't something nuts. Like it was actually with like, oh, it's something very simple. 
and it makes sense why he would behave this way. But I w- okay, I think the biggest downside to the film, I gave this film four and a half stars on Letterboxd. What prevented me from getting, giving it a five is that, I mean, Minato clearly has a line where he says their homeroom teacher, Hori, Mr. Hori, is nice. But to, to cover up the relationship, they lie and they allow their teacher to suffer embarrassment before the school admin, to suffer humiliation through the media. Now everybody in the town knows about this guy. And then he loses his one like relationship with this girl. So his whole life falls apart. He's going into he goes back to the school, clearly like he's not in the right place mentally. And then he's like on the rooftop, <laughs> like about to like jump off the building. Like at that point, like dude, come on. Minato and his and, and uh Hishikawa uh, Hoshikawa, sorry. Like, dude, they gotta speak up and say something. You know, like you're you're just having fun in your little train, but you're not like trying to. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at what point is it too much? You know, like so I, I kind of didn't like the fact that those kids like it just kind of showed them like there's like a lack of character on their part. I know they're like young and stuff, so they don't know. But when you see when you wrongly blame your teacher and then his life is completely falling apart and it's like that public, I don't know. I, I just feel I felt like they should have done something to make them. So so it, th- that was like the biggest downside. Like they just were kind of like in their own world without realizing like, oh shoot, this guy's, we're really doing this to our teacher who's supposedly nice. Yeah. And I feel like you as a teacher, it's uh you probably feel that a little bit more because you have to deal with, with dumb kids every day. So <laughs> did, yeah. did you feel solidarity with him? Yeah. I, I was pulling for him. He's my favorite character in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's funny. Uh, I admittedly, I did not have as big of an issue with that. Uh, maybe it's because I, I care less about the teacher, which who I mean, I yeah, I thought he was a great character as well. Uh, my issue was more with the fact that they just abandoned his story after the second story. Yeah. Um, well, they, they abandoned the mom story, too. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that's what that's the mm. thing I have the hardest yeah. time grasping with this story because, you know, there's no, you know, maybe it's too Hollywood of me to expect like, oh, I want, I want like an epilogue where they just kind of talk about where everyone's at at the end of the story. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they really just abandoned the mom story uh, and, you know, really only see her at the end when she and the teacher are like, you know, scrambling to find their kids uh, in, in the abandoned uh, train car and stuff. Um but uh, yeah, I mean, I I really wish that they could have given us a little bit more, but the ending already gave us a, a lot to think about. So, uh, yeah. so again, right. yeah, we we kind of talked about this, right? So let's talk about let's talk about the ending. Yeah, um, the movie ends with a typhoon hitting this town, and we know that the boys were in the train at the time of the typhoon, and it ends with them uh, coming out of the train or out of like this underground passageway uh, that was either close to the train. I, okay. So this part was confusing. I think, I think our geography of this location that where uh, they play in was a little bit unclear, I guess. I, I think maybe on repeat watching, it'll be a little bit more clear, but they come out basically and it's all sunny. It's nice. And they're running around uh, in, in, in the forest and they're all happy. I mean, I just thought it was just showing like, okay, they survived the typhoon. They're probably going to go back to town and it's going to be good. 
But one of the our friends who we watched it with, uh, shout out to Andrew, uh, he had a very different interpretation that was really devastating to us to hear, which is the boys actually died in the typhoon. And when they woke up, they were actually dead, you know, and this, they were like in heaven or something. And the way it was shot felt like very heavenly, you know, it was like very bright. There's, there's light everywhere. Um, and then they have each other basically. So uh, that was, that was an interpretation that, I, you know, I'm going to have to wait until I rewatch the film when it comes out. Uh, either on streaming or or we can we can purchase it or rent it. But yeah, I, I want to revisit it so that I can kind of pick up on those clues on what whether or not the ending is real or is it is it is did they actually die? Yeah, um, and I think you made a passing comment too that when they emerged from the train, you were like this like it was all bright and sunny and like it just looked really perfect and stuff. And you said something along the lines of like, this does not look like the place was just struck by like a devastating typhoon. Oh, yeah, um, right. Yeah, yeah. It didn't look like things were wet. Yeah, you know, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like there would have been like way more debris and like just everything would have been like destroyed and stuff. Right. Um, so I, I went on and online and, and I tried to look up like, you know, like Reddit uh, posts or people just giving their take on it. And I think the primary uh takeaway is that they did die um i i think there's people who you know will uh, of course you know they'll say that oh yeah they did live and stuff but uh i think it is ambiguous for a reason um i i think it's there there was purpose in Koreeda saying like yeah because because i think in interviews where they ask him about the ending he he refused to give like a straight answer so i'm sure that there's you know there's in intentionality behind that um but yeah, I, I have to, I have to uh, agree with our friend uh, Andrew. I, I do think that they died at the end, just because, like you said, there, it, the geography was a little confusing. Uh, but I feel like them emerging from the train. Um, I think the place that they emerged from in the train would not have been a place you could come out of uh, in the actual typhoon. I think because the typhoon created a lot of debris it like blocked a lot of stuff and then i feel like uh when they come out it's like it, it's as if it wasn't there right and it also i feel like they wouldn't have been able to come out and just run you know freely because the teacher and the mom would have been there until the very end like fine like trying to find them That's confirming true. their existence um i i don't think they would have given up halfway through and just be like let's go home right um and and yeah i, I think it just kind of speaks more to the i guess more of like the the them thematic relevance of the film if if they did die right uh and i know that you know like tolerance of like homosexuality and stuff in japan is not as um it's it's not as like ubiquitous as it is here in America. So I think this is more of a like a more subtle way of kind of like approaching that topic. Um, and so I think there's definitely more room to to say that like yeah, like the the suffering of of these kids and and like what they're going through. It's it's there's no like easy answers, right? Um, and so I, I feel like this is his way of giving them like a happy ending, sort of. But it is still difficult um but yeah i mean it's 
of course, you know, yeah, the, because Coriata doesn't give us a straight answer. I mean, it is up, left up to interpretation. But um, I do remember that shot where they like crack open the bus window and they like look in before it cuts to the third story, right? And they have this like horrified look on their face. And I think it does. There is like one shot of the bus like looking in, but I, I remember trying really hard to see like if there was anything, and I don't recall seeing the kids. So. Yeah, it, it was interesting to to theorize. I, yeah, I just I just remember seeing decorations. I was like, "What? What the heck?" Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I I gotta say, like, I I really appreciate how it approached this the third act and the relationship between these two boys because it was very, you know, it, it's very innocent the way that they they kind of their relationship grew and then how they grew closer to each other and how like the feelings came out. Uh, whereas I feel like if this was in a Western film, if this was a film in in America or Europe, it would be overly sexualized in your face. Oh my God. Yeah. 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 So, and this is why international cinema is so important. Like you see refreshing takes, like gentler, more restrained, uh, you know, approaches to, to relationships like this. Like, uh, yeah, I just, I, I love that it was like a, a sweet, innocent story, you know? Uh, that that it wasn't like trying to make you think a certain way or like tell you that you're, you know, whatever. So um, I think the messaging was very, uh, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't as overt as you would find it in a uh, Western film. Yeah, I I totally agree. I I think you know I, I'm just picturing this film being remade into American film right now, and I just imagine the kids being like i'm gay and i'm proud like my pronouns are blah 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 and it's just you know <laughs> just like just like really preachy soapboxy stuff and you know because that's like what's popular now um but i think you know american filmmakers have lost a little bit of the nuance behind tackling these important topics right because these are things that you know a lot of people are going through and struggling with right now and I think to give it like a disingenuous type of response like that is like it's so common in American movies now. So yeah, I, I totally agree. Like I appreciate uh, international filmmakers, you know, giving their interpretation of what it what it may be like, and, you know. And of course, it's not always going to be you know one way or or the other, right? There's there's going to be so many different situations where it's different and and, and whatnot. But it, it was refreshing to see it from this perspective, right? In in a nation where the you know, I think homosexuality is still very much looked down upon, right? We talk about shame culture. I think, you know, there there's probably still, you know, a pretty big aspect of that. I mean, shoot, in America, we still have that, right? Um, there, there's, a, there's a lot of divisiveness behind it. Um, so, yeah, uh, again, totally agree with you. All right. So we both loved Monster. Highly recommend our listeners to check that this movie out. And thank you so much for listening to the Weekend Foolish Movie Podcast. We really hope you appreciate Godzilla Minus One, The Boy and the Heron, and Monster. We will see you next time. See ya. We're not done yet. No. The Supreme Leader is wise. I'm sure you are. Blow that piece of junk out of the sky!